Support for our show comes solely from listeners like yourself. If you like what we're doing, help us by sharing the pod on social media and leaving us a five-star review, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Audible. Thanks again for listening, and without further ado, let's start the show. I'm Tracy McConnell, and I'm sticking with my union because being a member of PCTA allows me to advocate for my students without worrying about retaliation. Hey guys, welcome back to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm Brennan Pickett. I'm the FBA Director and Fire Co-Chair here at PCTA. I'm Dr. Anna Margiata. I am an AP Chemistry teacher at St. Pete High School. I'm Philip Bel Castro. I'm Fire Co-Chair and Director at Large at PCTA. Hi, I'm Robert Castanello. I'm an Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida. Right on. Robert, if you could introduce yourself and tell us about your area of expertise as a historian, particularly um, in relation to the education reforms and history wars that have occurred in Florida over the last 20 years. I'm a historian of Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. My publications, I think, have almost exclusively been about Florida and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. But I've also branched out into uh, the history of education in Florida. And are you from Florida? I was born in New York, but I came down to Florida with my family when I was five. I, I was kind of wondering that myself because you you always say Florida the same way that I do. I was hearing it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, how do I do? I say Florida. No, like you say it perfectly. That's exactly how it's supposed to sound. Yeah, he says Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Florida. <laughs> okay. see. It's, it's, it was an interesting chain migration. I remember when I was a kid, like my my parents would say, "We're going to go see the butcher," and we just went to this guy's house in Miramar. And he used to be a butcher in New York, but now he's doing something else. But my parents still called him the butcher. <laughs> so we would yeah, we'd see the butcher and the produce guy and all this other stuff. I'm particularly um, interested in these education reforms and history wars, as you had deemed them. Um, I was reading this, this, um, this editorial that you sent me recently, and you were talking about how bills like House Bill 7, which we'll be getting into more in depth very shortly, but this is... The culmination of multiple bills that have been going on for the past 20 years and it's been building and building and building and now we're finally seeing it almost like plateau in a sense can you go on a little bit about that sure so the the piece that you're referencing was really about um legislation that was passed by the florida legislature in 2006 and i was concerned about it at the time and what that piece of legislation did in 2006 was to mandate that history was teachable, testable, knowable, objective, effectively just facts. I believe the title of that editorial was just the facts or something like that. And so the um, there were a group of um, Republican legislators in 2006 who had been through some conservative think tanks. I believe it was the uh, the James Madison Institute who were kind of waxing on about what history teachers were doing and how they were doing in the classroom. They were, you know, they were essentially eliminating Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton for Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. So it created this sort of panic in the Florida legislature. And in 2006, they passed this bill. And the bill was really directed at this notion that at the time, you know, it wasn't so much race theory or anything like that. It was that we were teaching postmodernism, that we were teaching 
you know, students that they, you know, there isn't a black and white thing. But it was the idea that, you know, all everything was relative and there were no heroes and villains. And if we were going to assign heroes and villains, then the, the founders, or in their terms, the founding fathers were the villains and people of color were the heroes. And this is what was being done in the classroom. So in 2006, a group of legislators passed this bill that created a whole set of history standards that would be injected into the Sunshine State Standard that mandated that history was was factual based, not constructed. And um, what was interesting about the bill, it, it, it did not use the word indoctrination, but it sort of described this condition by which history teachers throughout the state, and I'm talking about K through 12, were essentially corrupting the young minds with knowledge that was, you know, postmodern. Okay. And I don't think that was true in 2006 um, any more than it's true today. I, I read through that article, too. And when I got to that part where it was talking about uh, history shall be viewed as factual, not constructed. Um, some of my background, my like dissertation project, I did a, a critical constructivism grounded theory project. So I read that and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is my jam. Like <laughs> nothing is objective. Everything's socially constructed. And it's like this this uh, worldview that I had to talk about so much and do like a lot of research into like while I was doing my dissertation. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's this deep. It goes back to 2006. Is this why you keep telling me that nothing's real? Nothing's real. No, literally, <laughs> literally, I spent four years <laughs> learning about how nothing's real. Everything's socially constructed. Well, isn't I mean, it goes right, yeah. back for way further than 2006, because uh, aren't all the Confederate monuments from like the 1930s of like revisionist historians? What was that group called? It was like the uh, Daughters of the Confederacy. Yes. Right. So like well after the Civil uh, yeah, that's War. That's even further. That, that's even further back. That's yeah. Like the 1880s. So, I mean, that, I mean, you're talking about like revisionist history and trying to view uh, things like that without context objectively. Um, it goes way, way further back than just Florida in 2006. Yeah, I think these these daughters, they kind of grew up and became mothers of liberty, I think. <laughs> that's who they are now. I think there's a connection there, sure. And, you know, that's not to say th- these things that we're talking about weren't discussed at the college and university campuses, but I don't think they were discussed in K through 12. And I think, you know, the thing with that piece of legislation in 2005, it was directed at K through 12. And at the time I was at, Um, the University of Central Florida, and it didn't impact me at all, right? It didn't apply to me because there weren't any curriculum standards. And I think what we're seeing in HB7 and why I'm saying this is related is because when they picked HB7 up, and of course it's a much narrow effort than 2006, because 2006 applied to all history. This applies to the history of race. What is different with HB7 is that they're trying to apply it also to colleges and universities. And what is thwarting them is there are no curricular standards. HB7 can get into the mainstream of a K-12 classroom directly through the Sunshine State standards, but it can't in colleges and universities because there are no, there are no curricular standards. And just for the listeners, the House Bill 7 that we keep referring to is the Stop Woke Act. And uh, I actually looked up what woke stand for because they had to make an acronym for everything, right? And it stands for wrong to our kids and employees so i think they thought of woke first and then they decided to put words in to fill in the that's the way they do everything with hope 
What is, <laughs> what is that? What, what there, joke? Shouldn't there be a t- oh, two to our kids and employees? It's, uh, it's okay. They just ignore to, it. I got oh, it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a hard acronym if you just don't look at the all the letters, I guess. <laughs> but do you think there's a push to put standards in university? Like, what, obviously, they're going to keep yes. targeting universities. Yes. So, what's going to happen yes. with that? Absolutely. I think you are correct. I think that's the next phase. That, And we're going to see that either in this legislature or the next legislature. But certainly that is um, what's coming. Because one of the things that came from the lawsuit, I believe, that the state has learned and legislators have learned, is that because there are no central curriculum standards, for college and universities, they really can't enforce the prohibition of content without stepping over academic freedom and the First Amendment, right? However, according to case law, if you interpret case law this way, you know, when there is a central curriculum standard uh, or universal curriculum standard that's coming down centrally, the instructor of the classroom, and this usually applies K through 12, where these things exist, does not have academic freedom or First Amendment rights to to counter or to refuse to teach the curriculum. You are listening to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Anna Margiata, Philip Castro, and Robert Casanello. We're here today talking about the education reforms and the history wars happening here in the state of Florida, um, proposed by numerous governors, but most recently, Ron DeSantis. You're talking about there's no standard for universities and colleges. What I'm wondering, as you're speaking and, and talking about the history of this, we're most recently here in Pinellas County, we had um, a Toni Morrison book banned from an IB program. Do you think that there's any sort of bad precedent being set by now seeing what goes on in K through 12 courses that are supposed to have these, these free or international curricula? that carrying over now to the university or state university system level with, you know, the state sort of superseding those? You know, I don't know. I I mean, I'm just mentioning, and I'm speculating here. I don't know what the legislature is going to do. They certainly don't consult with me. um, (laughs) Maybe they should. They should, but they don't. Um, But if I'm talking about, you know, the legal cases I've seen related to this question of curriculum and free speech, right? None of them approach what you're describing as far as these external curricular standards being applied in a K through 12 setting. They're mostly just within the K through 12 system and state system of curriculum. And so, for example, they deal specifically with a teacher who said, oh, I'm supposed to teach this. This is in the curriculum standards, but I don't believe in this, so I'm not teaching this. And then the courts have decided, um, I don't think this has ever gone to the Supreme Court. But um, the courts have decided that um, that teacher in that case doesn't have academic freedom or freedom of speech to um, speak against the curriculum. Okay, that the curriculum has to be has to be taught. Now, what you're describing this external curriculum coming into the school system, I don't know. I haven't seen any case law um, related to that, but it would it would be sort of interesting, and I think it would make a good a good test case. Um, hearing about. Uh standards potentially being applied to Florida colleges and universities just really makes me feel like Florida wants me to leave. Because <laughs> like, I I have decided to work at the high school for at least another year, but um, I'm planning in the fall to like start applying to colleges and universities again. And like, why, why would I switch to teaching at a 
college or university in Florida if it's, you know, just another set of standards. Are we it's like one of up, the most frustrating things. Are we setting up the state just for a total brain drain of people just not even yeah, wanting like to be here? Everyone get out, leave. I mean, that's what they want. <laughs> and I guess they're just going to get it because fine. Has any other state or country or any kind of organization ever implemented standards into a university setting? I don't, I've never heard of this before. I'm unaware of any. Um, and I think if they did do this, they couldn't do it in the same way they do it K-12 because um, it would be too unwieldy. Can you imagine like every course everybody teaches having a set of universal, I mean, it would be, it would take 30 years to, to, to really kind of implement that. Absolutely. So my guess is going, right, my guess is going to be they're going to do this with general ed courses, right? Yeah. And they're going to say, you could teach whatever you want in the upper division. But when they teach, when they take the survey, we're just talking history, when they take the U.S. history survey or the Western or world, this is the curriculum you have to teach. So, so I guess with this, I'm going to transition to our next talking point, which would be about House Bill 7, finally, commonly referred to as the Stop Woke Act. It has been one of those prominent pieces of culture war legislation passed by Governor DeSantis in the state of Florida. Um, Robert, as a key plaintiff in the lawsuits challenging this law, can you provide us like a brief summary of its contents and explain what specifically are you contesting in higher courts right now? Sure. So there are altogether four HB7 lawsuits. I'm just one of the four. Okay. Uh, one of the HB7 lawsuits is specifically targeting workplace trainings. The other three are K-12 college and university instructors. And I'm in one of those three. What they're all arguing is that um, HB7 is uh, a violation of the First Amendment. Um, mm. uh, and acknowledging that instructors on all levels, um, K, K through 12 college university have the freedom of speech. In addition to the freedom of speech, um, we also have academic freedom, which is not a right <laughs> but it is a tradition and a practice that actually the courts recognize. And so there's been some decisions made by the judge and the judge has recognized academic freedom as a thing that courts can consider in this case, as well as the First Amendment. Your challenge to the courts is not just reaching out to university professors, but it's also going out to K-12. And I think the argument that K-12 might have some sort of uh, academic freedom, some kind of academic uh, first amendment right. That's interesting, I think, because I would I would argue a lot of parents don't necessarily agree with that as well. Well, we don't know. Here's the thing: is if you've been if you've been following these cases, right? The mm -hmm. injunction only applies to colleges and universities, not K through twelve. So it very well could be at the end of these cases or one of these cases that we in the colleges and universities get our academic freedom and First Amendment rights recognized, but K-12 instructors do not. That's a possibility. So do you think this has any potential at all to reach um, the Supreme Court to make a decision at all? Like these laws by uh, Ron DeSantis, like do they have any potential at all to reach the Supreme Court and have academic freedoms on the decision table? If, if, is it a table? I don't know what do they have in the Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, a butcher's block. A butcher's block. <laughs> So um, everything I have seen, all of the um, statements and press conference I've read, the DeSantis administration and the legislature, 
I believe we'll take this to the Supreme Court, and if the Supreme Court wants to hear it, should we get that far? Oh, wow. Um, that will be exciting. their decision. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, it's we, terrifying. You know, I was going to say, do we want it's, the Supreme yeah, Court it's, deciding it this? I'm not I, confident in them. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, there are many conservatives who tend to be free speech absolutists. And so I would not assume that strict constructionists Federalist society judges and things like this necessarily want to wade in the waters of curbing free speech out of uh, a philosophical commitment to the notion of free speech. I don't know. I'm pretty scared about our current makeup. I know Roberts might be leaning more towards First Amendment Mm -hmm. rights, but I can't imagine what Clarence Thomas is thinking or (laughs) Alito or, you know, it's been such a... yeah dodgy court these days (laughs) sure but you have to understand too that in the entire appeals process though the questions in which the court considers and the lawyers argue narrow at each step right so this hasn't gone to trial yet but say when it goes to trial right both sides both lawyers are going to you know come with you know a range of arguments then when it goes to appeals they can't retry the case they can only attack the judge's decision Mm. and whether the judge's decision was based on good case law, right? So that narrows the avenue in which the lawyers have to operate to overturn the decision. It's not exactly like, okay, there's three bites at the apple here, and you just you bring it each time until you get the court that you want. It's so, complicated. So I guess you call yourself an optimist. <laughs> uh, you know, okay, I, I am inherently a pessimist. Okay, right? okay. Mm-hmm. But, but based, ba- right, based on you know, everything I've seen Judge Walker say, he seems to indicate that he's open to um, questions of First Amendment and free speech. I think that's a good sign. We want, if you know, if we're looking at it from our perspective in K through 12, we want to be able to, like, teach, you know, history, right? If we want to be able to have these first and second grade mm-hmm. teachers yeah. who are allowed to mention that Rosa Parks was, in fact, black. Right, right. Or that the reason that she was asked to move from her seat was because of the color. Right. So we want to be able to do that. But for example, if a teacher, like a science teacher, was said, oh, I just don't believe in evolution. So I'm just not going to teach that, that they don't have that right. Is that accurate? If the curriculum standards say that evolution is what is taught, yes. Right. You know, (laughs) I would I hesitate to say that broadly because what if someone pulls out a state set of standards? Yeah, exactly. Well, this is all this is all (laughs) hypothetical. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's all hypothetical. that's, That's basically that's basically the case. And I think one of those one of those cases is is in a science class. So I think that analogy you made actually has real. Bearing. That's kind of what I figured. So that's that's what I'm wondering is are mm-hmm. are we going to be able to I mean it's it's education what you know what you're talking about and history is ongoing. A lot of what's going on here in Florida is history related which is in progress all the time. So are we going to ever reach some sort of definitive point where we say this is okay but this is not because I feel like the creationist teacher would be able to step right back in and say, well, how come I couldn't do this then? If, they, if they're allowed to do this, how come I can't do this? And then here, right. here okay. we are right back to right. square one. So again, because the notion of academic freedom is a little bit murky in K through 12, right? But it's more well-defined colleges and universities. So we'll have to work, we'll have to establish this and work back. So for example, like in our contract at the University of Central Florida, we have an academic freedom article, right? but it's not called academic freedom full stop. Mm. It's called academic freedom and 
responsibility. Okay. And it's the responsibility part that would curb the creationist or flat earth professor in the earth science class, right? right. Whatever, biology class. Because that would violate the responsibility part of the academic freedom and responsibility, right? So I have academic freedom, right? But if I come into my classroom and I say, oh, um, the Holocaust never happened, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not protected with academic freedom by saying that statement or trying to teach that content, right? Mm-hmm. Because then I would brush it up against the responsibility part of it because as a scholar, I'm responsible to teach accurate information, truthful information, all this other kind of stuff, right? And so, you know, um, the Holocaust was verifiable and if I come in and deny it, I'm doing something that is in violation of right. my professional ethics as a, as a historian. My guess is the same would apply K through 12, right? That K through 12 teachers, you know, I think they probably have some semblance of academic freedom, but academic freedom comes with the responsibility clause. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a K through 12 teacher probably couldn't come into the classroom and say, um, Jesus Christ literally died for your sins. You know, <laughs> the test will be Wednesday. Right? <laughs> that, that, would, that would probably violate the responsibility clause. You're listening to PCTA's Fire Podcasts. I'm Brendan Pickett here with Dr. Anna Machiata, Philip Del Castro, and Robert Casanello. And finishing up our conversation, I kind of want to keep going on about House Bill 7 for a second here. Robert, do you believe that laws like House Bill 7 are effectively addressing the needs of the general public? It's kind of rhetorical, but if not, right, why do you think such bills continue to be proposed and passed by the Florida legislature? And what actions do labor organizers such as FEA, what, what are they doing to oppose these? So what do we feel the union's um, role is in all of this? Um, so I firmly believe, and this comes from personal experience, when the legislature uh, mucks about in the education, the public education, students, whether it's K through 12, college, university, they don't do a good job because they're not themselves educators. They're not, if we talk history, they're not themselves historians, right? You know, in 2006, when it, when that legislation um, passed, I was a historian here. No one asked historians their thought about how history should be implemented in K through 12. But instead, it was the hubris of legislatures who says, who say, I know better. Every, you know, every person's a historian, and I'm just as capable of being a historian as that person with a PhD at the University of Central Florida. And I think that kind of hubris creates bad legislation, right? So like, you know, if they wanted to pass some kind of health legislation and say, okay, we're gonna, cr- we're gonna uh, create some health legislation, you know, to address, um, you know, cancer, or some cancer treatment, right? Are they gonna say, hey, my neighbor <laughs> watched a TV program about cancer, I'm gonna have this person come speak to the committee to help us draft this bill. <laughs> They wouldn't do that. They might. And in effect, they might. <laughs> These days. <laughs> they, would look, they, would look, they would look foolish. And nobody wants to play with health, right? You know, I, mean, I, should, I shouldn't say that because we just went through the coronavirus. I was going to say, you're, 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 that might be the worst health, example yeah. to make. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> Everyone became a virologist. <laughs> bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. So, um, but, you know, they don't do this with um, curricular decisions. And I can give you a perfect example outside of the state. Okay. Right? You know. And um, the state of South Dakota, right, decided this year to change, or it was last year, 
to change their history curriculum for the state, right, or revise it. So they impaneled, um, I think it was 80 people, right, 80 people, some of whom were historians, some of whom were educators, some of whom were history teachers, K through 12. So they had this kind of, you know, diverse pool of experiences, right, all germane to the teaching of history on some capacity, right? And they said, okay, let's change this, let's revise these standards. And when they got to, I believe, a draft revision of those standards, the um, I'm not sure if it was the lieutenant governor or um, the head of the Department of Ed in South Dakota, but essentially um, dismantled this committee and said, oh, don't need you anymore. Don't even release these, <laughs> right? We, we don't need revised standards. Thank you. Have a good day. You know, that was it, right? Then weeks later, impaneled a new committee. Oh. And the new committee is made of 20 people, one of which was a working history teacher in the state of South Dakota. One. one. <laughs> I'm sure he was banging his head against the concrete. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I got a feeling this might have been a patsy. Right? Um. And so then they, then they created this, these history standards. Right. So, I mean, in that, in, in that, in that story, I mean, this tells you the danger of this. And it also tells you that this is not about teaching the best pedagogy or teaching the best content, it is inherently political. And since it's inherently political, it needs to be taken out of the purview of the legislature. I just immediately think about the HB1, the pronouns one, where in it, it's like mm -hmm. sex is an undeniable like trait based off of reproduction or whatever. And it's like, says who? Says who? Like, I'm a biochemist. I could do a whole class on like, what sex is and like what i don't know it's so frustrating i'm just you're so right they only talk to experts when it is convenient to for the use of power against like minoritized people mm -hmm. i don't know and the pretext of hb1 is like they're mad about pronouns and bathrooms yeah like, the it's stakes like, are so low it's like we are going to incorrectly define sex so that we can be mean to trans kids <laughs> it's, it's culture war it's all culture war and that's kind of what i was kind of coming out here is is this meeting any needs at all in the state like are we actually addressing actual concerns like why do these bills keep getting pushed through it bothers me to think that people are electing these officials to continue to make legislation like this but it's just them saying this is a fact without actually talking to experts and, and it's and it's always been like this i mean i i believe i'm the oldest person on this um currently on this esteemed panel right <laughs> so when when i was in middle school in the late 70s and early 80s you know we had an entire curriculum that was called the evils of communism <laughs> it wasn't called communism it was called the evils of communism i think they brought that back don't we have the That's the victims they did. of communism they did bring it back they did it right they did away with it in 1988 and they did bring it back and i remember you know being about i don't i think i was 12 years old and i was in the middle school civics classroom and if you if you know about or maybe even remember the old slides on the, the oh, yeah. it was like click, yeah. click, click. And so it was like, here are people starving in the Soviet Union because they mm -hmm. don't have food. Click. Here's people <laughs> waiting for three hours to get a roll of toilet paper in yep. Moscow. Click, click. Yep. And it was just like, I mean, it was almost like, you know, um, a clockwork orange. We're just like, 
boom, boom, boom. And if this is not indoctrination, right? <laughs> indoctrination. If this is not indoctrination, I'm not sure what is. Are you accusing these teachers of possibly grooming you? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say this. I walked away from that curriculum um, really interested and started to read Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. Did not do its intended job. You know, when I heard about the, the oppression of the proletariat, I'm like, I just think that might be me. <laughs> yeah, I need to learn more about that. What are you guys all uh, getting each other for Victims of Communism Day? Oh, Victims of Communism Day? Yeah, what are you getting, everyone? Uh, man, a single bread. potato. A single potato bread. <laughs> Maybe a, a can of no frills, just black black and white label coffee. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be old school and, and offer a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> for old time's sake. Splinters included. <laughs> Splinters that's included. A very, that's, a very, that's a very 70s thing. Toilet paper. <laughs> Well, don't go too far. COVID just happened too. Keep going back to COVID. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We might need that toilet paper, splinters and all. <laughs> so um, just kind of go recapping here, has FEA or any other labor organizations reached out to you at all to kind of give you some help or support? Or what do you feel the union's I, position yeah, is? Yeah, I actually, our union, United Faculty of Florida, I would say, I would say yes. Um, okay. FEA, I don't really deal with. You know, the thing that we're seeing, and I'm, I'm glad you brought the labor thing up just now, because people are not connecting this, the, the HB7 issue, to the labor issue. Because what's also happened simultaneously is, at least those of us in public universities, we're becoming at-will employees um, through various pieces of legislation that's going through the system right now um, in terms of post-tenure review, and in terms of decertification of our of our unions, right? And it's coordinated for those reasons because you know um, what I think the state of Florida is realizing, and I'm textbook case number one on this, is they could pass this HB seven thing, and then they have these pesky professors with tenure that challenge it, right? And so, well, how do you get rid of those people? You got to get rid of tenure. You got to weaken tenure. You got to weaken workplace protections, and so. Um, it's very likely we could be coming into a workplace environment in the fall where our protections are much, much weakened and the board of trustees, the president, the legislature could have much more say about specific individuals or groups of people. You know, they want terminate, terminated tenure notwithstanding or the contract notwithstanding. I mean, this is, this is the danger we're talking about. And these things are linked, you know. Like they can't do the HB7 stuff without doing the workplace stuff. And so this is why the labor question um, is so important. And I'm glad that you noticed that as well. I like I was just going to say, this is just going back to us all hurtling towards just a cop with a gun in a classroom, <laughs> universities, colleges, high schools, everywhere. That's all it's going to be. Get all these professors out of here. We don't want them. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Everything just becomes Police Academy, the movie, but with much less uh, jokes that don't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's an old school reference, Police Academy. Yeah, I had, I had a, a Comedy Central on cable when I was a kid, so I just watched a lot of oh, reruns okay. of stuff from the 80s. <laughs> wow. All right. Very good. All right. I, I appreciate you speaking down to my generation. Right <laughs> <laughs> no, it was helpful. Formative. That's formative. helpful. These are, these are formative <laughs> memories for me. Very well, good. I think we're running out of time here. We're going to take a short break. And when we get back, folks, we're going to do our base awards. So stick around, guys. Hello there. 
If you support the podcast, you can now donate directly to us from the link in the description. You can donate 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 monthly. Your donation can help get me, Aziz, off the streets. Well, unfortunately, Aziz will always be on the streets. He yearns for the streets. But your support will go towards producing high-quality episodes just like the one you're listening to right now. Your support helps us keep gas in the tank, food on our tables, and our classrooms full of pencils and paper. We all know edumacators all over America are undervalued and underpaid. Help us, mooks like me, continue to bring recognition and a voice to education professionals. Are you concerned about recent book bannings and the erasure of diverse experiences in literature and history? On May 6th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., the Unitarian Universalists of Clearwater will be hosting a Band and Challenge book giveaway. They believe in the inherent dignity and worth of every individual and oppose any effort to suppress or erase diverse populations. This free book distribution is open to all young people of all ages, with children under 16 accompanied by a parent or a guardian. Attendees may select two free books from their collection of banned or challenged literature and take it home. This event's located at the Unitarian Universalist of Clearwater Campus, located at 2470 Nursery Road over here in Clearwater, Florida. If you happen to be in Pinellas County, guys, swing by and show support for our communities. Mark it on your calendar. We hope to see you there. And we're back. So, folks, we're going to begin our base award, which, for those of us who might have forgotten, it is something that is agreeable or respectable. So, to start us off today, Dr. Anna Margiata. I, for my base award, I am giving it to Aguilar uh, Jag. Jaguar. Aguilar the Jaguar. the Jaguar. I just call him Jag. What is even Michael? (laughs) (laughs) What is this person I've worked with's name, his real name? (laughs) He came over before we were recording to give Philip and I birthday presents, and I am going to lead his fan club, and I love him, and he's very based. He is super cool. We call him the Jaguar because he's so elusive. He's hard to he's hard to pin down. He was here for like 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. He was in and out. <laughs> we never saw him. Like the Jaguar. Right. <laughs> My based award is, this is actually the second time this student has appeared as a based award. Uh, the student is a very amazing artist a very talented artist uh, and a very kind and sweet person and uh, my birthday was recently and most of my birthday shenanigans in the classroom was former students students that i taught last year and the year before and uh, only one of my current students um, made a a really nice piece of artwork a, a watercolor painting of the mandalorian and uh, baby yoda with a really really nice note on the back of it so that was that made my birthday and my weekend much much nicer so that that particular student is based for the second time my base award is that i have finished planning all of my summer vacations and we are going to start in italy make our way over to amsterdam head down to bruges then ghent then brussels and spending a week in paris i am so ready to get out of here <laughs> i am beyond ready to go back to europe it's been a very long time since i've been back to europe so it's kind of like a homecoming for me and my wife yeah. and we're just gonna put our feet up we're gonna go to some cafes have a croissant you know and <laughs> just do what french people do i guess is europe based or are you based i guess it's all kind of based oh okay yeah ramsey how based is this europe is extremely based especially france there you go. Yeah. According to the expert, Ramsey Aziz. Are you going to join the riots 
I'm going to join the riots. <laughs> I'm going to not take out my trash. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Never yeah. take out the trash. I want to actually do a shout out. Um, and I want to recall a memory that I think was the first day of my life that got me to this point here in this recording. So if you'll bear with me. Um, I, I want to do a shout out to my public school second grade teacher. I went to Dania Elementary down in Dania, Florida, and her name was Miss Watson. She was a young African-American woman, and she was my favorite teacher in elementary school. She was just wonderful. She was beautiful. I learned so much from her. And there was one day in class, this would have been in, I actually know the date because it would have been April 4th. 1978 where she took us to the auditorium because there was a school-wide program for all of us all of us uh, elementary school students to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the death of martin luther king and all of the african-american teachers and there weren't many just a handful they had just recently been integrated um, in that school in 1972 and they all came up on the stage and they got the microphone they spoke to us young people about the civil rights movement, about the marches. And Miss Watson spoke. And Miss Watson talked about what King meant to her. And I saw the tears as a as a young eight-year-old child. I saw the tears on her face when she talked about the indignities that she had to face. And it made a really striking uh, impression on me as a young people. And at the end of this event, uh, the teachers asked, African-American teachers asked us all to kind of uh, hold hands and we all sang what they referred to as the song they all sang on the marching and we all sang we shall overcome and I think that moment kind of sparked something in me put something um, in my um, in my brain and it's something I've gone to time and time again in my life because when I got my PhD my first job was in Birmingham Alabama and you can imagine being in Birmingham, Alabama, and I wanted to learn so much. And I ran across a newspaper article at that time, this would have been 2002, about my elementary school teacher, Miss Watson. And Miss Watson grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and was friends, childhood friends, with the four little girls who died in the Birmingham bombing. Wow. And wow. it just connected me. It connected to me to that moment, and I realized what that moment was to her. And I realized what she embedded into me, what she seeded into me as a young person that I have taken with me. And I don't know that I would be here today, that I would be talking to you, that you would want to speak to me had I not had Miss Watson in the second grade. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you want to come to the school board and talk to them about this? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> While you're still legally allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> that was an incredible story. Miss Watson, I know she's around. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's the show today, guys. Thanks again for listening to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm Brennan. I'm Philip. I'm Dr. Anna. I'm Robert Casanova. That's the show. Take Thank it easy, guys. You. Thank you very much, gang. Summer is on the horizon, but we'd still like to remind our listeners that the school board will continue to meet on May 9th, June 27th, and July 11th at 10 a.m. 
and June 13th at 5 p.m. You might be thinking, gee, that's a lot of early meeting times, but this is definitely the norm here in Pinellas. Help us by going out and speak against this to have the school board conduct its business when the working public is free to voice their concerns. It's vital for teachers, parents, and community members to attend these meetings and advocate for public education. Your voice and presence can play a significant role in shaping the future of education and improving the lives of students in our community. A special thank you to Philip Belcastro for providing our theme music and artifact for adding some great tracks into our intermissions. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Artifact's music at artifactjoints.bandcamp.com. We also want to express our gratitude to Radio St. Pete for airing our podcasts, Jamie Beck, Brian Belton, Nancy Filardi, Lee Bryant, and all of our supporters from the education community, as well as our monthly supporter, Jacob Albert. Your support and dedication has been instrumental into getting the word out and reaching our new listeners. That's all for today. I'm Brennan Pickett. Have a great day, guys.